If you would, take your copy of God's Word, turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 24 this morning. I said 24, 22, sorry about that. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, inside cover of your bulletin, you can find the Scripture passage. You can also grab one of the black books in the pew rack in front of you. There's, there's various copies of it floating around. So Acts 4, verses 1 through 22, hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Uh, since the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. You're good when we see the Colorado sunshine some 300 days a year, shining bright. You're good when it's cloudy and dreary. The same is true in the good and bad of life. Your goodness remains. It doesn't rise and fall like the ocean tide or like the stock market. You remain good. So would you show us your goodness? Would you show us our sin and show us our Savior? We pray it all in his great name. Amen.
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you might also say the bondage of ministers and apostles is the seed of the church, the source of future growth. Now, I'm not talking about ministers who commit real crimes. No, I'm talking about when ministers or apostles or any Christian is wrongly imprisoned, persecuted simply for preaching the gospel. That happened to Peter and John. We just read it. It also happened to the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, This is Paul writing from prison. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. You can't put it in prison. Because the incarnate word is in heaven and he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church. They have given us, given them a message of good news. Good news that we've said spreads like a wildfire. Lock its messengers up and it still spreads. Persecute its messengers, it still spreads. That's why Tertullian back in the second, third century AD said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution is like a refiner's fire. It burns away the chaff, the hangers-on. What it leaves is a stronger, more courageous group of Christians who love Christ more than life. They love the word, which is not bound. They love the good news it contains, the power that's found in the name of Jesus. And Because the word is not bound, because it is the exclusive, all-sufficient source of salvation, God's people cannot help but speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, sermon points aren't supposed to contain negatives, uh, not, can't, words like that. And I don't want to be flippant, but I'm breaking that rule today. Our three points this morning, the word is not bound. There is no other name and we cannot help but speak. First, the word is not bound. Verses one through four. If this were a TV episode, we'd say something like this. Previously on the Acts of the Apostles, Peter and John healed a man who was lame from birth. Then they told the crowd the following, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and faith in Jesus has given this man perfect health. Repent therefore that your sins may be forgiven. God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. As you might imagine, that sermon had quite an impact on the audience. You see it in verses 1 and 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It's almost like the Sadducees ambush them. They arrest them. They throw them in jail overnight in verse 3. They weren't the government, but the Sadducees were the sect of Judaism who's most friendly with the Roman government. So they could arrest them if they were disturbing the peace of the synagogue. Yes, that's a very vague phrase, but there's something else going on here. Sadducees, what do you know about them? What did they believe? Oh, most of us forget, which means I have to repeat the silly rhyme. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. And what doctrine were Peter and John proclaiming? 
Verse 2 says they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I don't understand why the Sadducees bothered believing in the God of the Old Testament if they didn't believe in the resurrection. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are above all people most to be pitied. If this is all there is, then what's the point? But this is not all there is. And our insistence upon that still upsets people today. Now, side note, sometimes we don't live like that. We don't live like we have an eternal hope and a life more abundant and free. Sometimes we live like God and heaven don't exist, don't have any impact on our lives. Shame on us if that's true. But when we do live that way with the hope that we have in Christ, it will create opposition. When we speak words that directly contradict the worldview of others, their theory of everything, we should expect opposition. That may tempt us to shrink back. But what you see in verse 4 should embolden you. Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Peter and John are in jail, but the word of God... He's not in jail. It's spreading like wildfire between Acts 2 and Acts 4. You go from a few thousand people, I think it's 3,000 to 5,000 here. 2,000 people been added to the church, a 60% increase or more. The lawful authorities, lawful in the sense that God has put them in authority, Romans 13, they are making unlawful judgments. But the judge of all the earth is having his way. His word is spreading, his kingdom is advancing so that his gospel is reigning in the hearts and minds of more and more people. The word is not bound. The Bible I'm holding is given to me by a Chinese pastor. He was a house church pastor who had come to the United States for seminary. One of the last things I did before we moved to Colorado was teach a new members class that he and his family were a part of. I think it's the only gift I've ever received for teaching a new members class. And frankly, the memory makes it hard to top. Just a little reminder that the word of God is not bound. It's not in chains. Can't be contained. Not by communist China, not by Pilate, not by Caesar, not by the Sadducees, not by anyone. Our mission is to remain faithful witnesses to the good news, to continue trusting God's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church because the word of God is not bound. That's the first thing we see. Next, we also see this. There is no other name. There is no other name in verses 5 through 12. The word's not bound, though Peter and John are bound, and they have to appear before the Jewish authorities the next morning. It's probably some of the same folks along with Annas, the true high priest. That's how the Jews thought of it. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was likely the high priest in name, though not in function, not in reputation or authority. And there are other high-ranking folks here, intimidating the apostles, possibly threatening them, as they'll do later on explicitly. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, <clears throat> they inquired, by what power and by, or by what name did you do this? These men assumed they 
or the authority. So they want to know by what authority, power, name, representation of someone's power. Are they operating under? So verses 8 and 9, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? We'll get back to Peter's thought here in a minute. Notice he's filled with the Holy Spirit to answer his accusers. And and, in so doing, Luke 12, verses 11 through 12 is being fulfilled. Jesus back then said, don't worry when they bring you before rulers, authorities, synagogues, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that hour. This is not an excuse for preachers winging it on Sunday morning. It's not an excuse for Christians to stop reading and studying their Bible. No, it's a reminder that the Holy Spirit can overcome our poor preparation if needed, that part of his ministry might be recalling the right things in the right moment for the right audience. It's a promise of Jesus fulfilled all the same. Also notice Peter addresses them by their titles. Shows respect, even though they aren't acting respectably. Peter is honoring his authorities when and where and how he can. Being filled with the Spirit plus boldness does not equal disrespect. And Peter states as well the issue clearly, again, though not disrespectfully, he says, if we're being examined today, Concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, that's not illegal. Last time I checked, but that's the closest thing to an official reason that they were arrested. Causing commotion for doing a good deed. Because, you know, we just can't have people getting excited about good deeds now, can we? That's not really why the Jewish authorities were upset, right? No, it's because there's another sheriff in town. A new authority. And it's not Peter and John. Verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, we already read this one. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's the one You rejected, he says. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. He just adds the by you part in there. Jesus, the son of God, that's who the authority is, not you, Jewish leaders. And they don't know what to do with that. This truth, this hard, ugly, brutal truth about themselves They rejected the Savior, and they can't admit it. Later on, they try to shut it down. They don't want other people talking about this because, one, it's a threat to their authority. Two, they'll look bad, but they can't argue with what has happened. Verse 14 says they they can't admit it. They can't argue with it. Jesus, whom they crucified, healed this man. They can't admit it. They need an explanation that leaves Jesus out of the equation. And we can easily do the same thing, my friends. Even if we have trusted in Christ, when we have to confront the deepest secrets, the most shameful facts about ourselves, we want some other explanation. 
If it's our fault, we don't want to admit it. If it's not our fault, we struggle to realize that God is still good in the midst of our pain. So we look for explanations that don't involve Jesus. We look for justifications that don't involve Jesus. Instead of saying something like, I'm a train wreck, my sins are many, but his mercy is more. Instead of that, we want to say, here's how I can make sense of my world without God. Or here's how I can justify myself in spite of my sin that I don't want to deal with. Let me justify myself by my righteous deeds, whether they're biblical ones or contemporary ones. It could look like this. I will always buy organic produce, ethically sourced meat, you name it. I will never buy from companies that aren't green or I will only support Christian businesses. I will never, never buy anything from anyone who supports unrighteousness. Now, to clarify, there are items, stores, businesses that I feel less comfortable giving my money to these days. You may have a similar list. If that's your conviction, I would say fine. But I also want to say I'm not sure we can know every secondary source that our purchases support, even if we could. It might be exhausting to keep track of them all. It might be impossible to keep track of them all. And I know it's impossible to keep such a list perfectly. Whether it's where you shop, what you wear, when to speak, when to listen. Even if you can write the perfect list of contemporary, contextualized good deeds that also aligns with Scripture, you won't be able to keep them. You won't be able to justify yourself before a holy God. You still won't be good enough in God's sight. You will still need Jesus just as much. Just as much as you do today, just as much as you did yesterday, just as much as the guy who doesn't care and has it all wrong. For all of us, whether we're strangers or sophomores or senior citizens in the faith, we all need the same thing. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, don't suppress the truth, the truth about Christ or the truth about yourself. We need the name of Jesus just as much as the Jews in Jerusalem. We need to confront the brutal truth about ourselves and our sin. We need to let Jesus, the name of Jesus, heal all of us. It is enough that Jesus died that he died for me. The word is not bound. There is no other name. And number three, we cannot help but speak. We cannot help but speak. Verses 13 through 22, they drop the, the truth bomb on the Jewish leaders, don't they? And then the Jewish leaders, they don't know what to do. They're amazed as well, it says, that John and Peter, they're so bold because what does it say? They're uneducated. That, that doesn't mean stupid or illiterate. It means they didn't go to a rabbi-certified seminary. No, instead, they learned the feet of Jesus. As Jim Boyce says, they spent three years in the best seminary the world has ever seen. The Jewish leaders, they recognize that too in verse 13. They want to disagree with them. But they can't, verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. That guy who couldn't stand for 40 years, he's 
What is it? Standing beside them. He's part of the trial. He's this silent exhibit of the power of God's word. And his silence, you might say, is contagious because the Jewish leaders can't say anything. So they go into executive session. They excuse everybody else. They form a plan. Let's just tell them not to preach. A lawful authority who can't confront the brutal truth about themselves, and therefore they can't receive the beautiful healing of the gospel, the lawful authority gives an unlawful command, unlawful according to God's law, verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What does Peter teach us about submitting to authority? What do Peter and John teach us about unlawful authority? How to respond to that? Before that, let me say this. We as a church need to realize many have been hurt by bad uses of authority within the church, outside the church, sometimes in someone's own home, sadly mistreatment by one's parents, by the government, by teachers, etc. You don't need to watch a lot of news to know that this is true. I don't know how common it is. I'm not sure if statistics are helpful. I think we can agree this is more common than we'd like it to be. Many people have been hurt by improper use of authority. And even if it's not our fault, we should be aware of it. Because when we encounter someone like that who's been harmed by the improper use of authority, they will probably need our patience, our prayers, and our persistent love. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. We need to be patient not just with the hurting, the faint-hearted especially, but with all. And that includes those authorities who are being disobedient to God. Look at what Peter says, verse 19. Whether it's right for us to do, I'm summarizing for the moment, whether it's right for us to do what you say rather than what God says, how does he end? You judge. It's one word in Greek, a command. You judge, you decide. Peter doesn't say this because he's confused about what God's word says. Peter knows they're wrong. He knows it. But he's offering them a chance to think about this unbiblical command. You know better. You worship a miracle-working God. Peter is, best I can tell, ready to suffer the consequences for his decision and theirs, even if they are unjust judges. Doesn't mean he won't protest, of course. But Peter submits to a disobedient authority by affirming their authority, which they are abusing, and informing them of his intention to disobey. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. We can't stop. We can't not say what we've seen and heard. Pardon the double negative. What do we do? When confronted with an unlawful command from authorities that God has placed over us. First, I know we've stressed this once already, but be respectful like Peter does. With an authority he knows is wrong. The last time you encountered an unlawful use of authority, 
Were you this respectful and patient? Say when the DMV violated their own written policy and denied a permit that you really needed. When FedEx Freight sent threatening letters full of fraudulent, misleading charges that your family appealed multiple times with no response from that company, only to then threaten you with a collections agency. That, that hypothetical was, was strangely detailed, wasn't it? I wonder why. <laughs> also, for about a decade, God has used my family and friends to sanctify me and in my interactions with customer service representatives who are people made in God's image, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Respecting authorities, even when they abuse authority. It's something scripture models for us. Is it also commanded? First Peter 2, 16 and 17, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Of course, all the respect and honor in the world cannot avoid every conflict. One chapter later, Peter will say, we must obey God rather than men. If the government or any authority commands you to do something sinful, omitting a duty, committing a sin, then you must obey God rather than men doesn't mean that we can disobey the government whenever we think they've made a bad decision, even a really bad decision, because that could be a long list, right? thought I'd get an amen on that one, but, but if they command us to sin, we can't do that. We must obey God. And notice this turns out, turns out okay for Peter and the apostles, doesn't it? Doesn't mean it'll happen that way every time for God's people, but this time it does. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. God's presence preserves the church, gives him favor in the eyes of the people. There are some mitigating circumstances there, right? These guys don't want to go against the crowd and make more enemies. God preserves the church, though not until her leaders have spent a night in jail. But God's Spirit gave them not only the words to speak, but also the patience and the trust in God. You might say He gave them a meekness, a strength under control to navigate this persecution. Now, on one level, I want to say, if you want to see capital P persecution, go read a copy of The Voice of the Martyrs. There's a copy on that table outside my office. On another level, I don't want to diminish the real persecution in our own country, a country founded upon freedom but soaked in our secular age. Our world, our country does not agree with us as Christians. More and more, that's the case. My seminary's president gave a, few, gave, gave a talk a few years ago to our old church in Mississippi. Why do I point that out? Because I think most of you know that, that Mississippi, Mississippi eight, nine, ten years ago, whenever it was, is a little bit of a different culture than, say, Colorado in 2023, right? But nonetheless, the title of the talk, Rejoice, the Culture Has Turned Against You. Now, maybe your first instinct is not rejoicing. 
in that circumstance, which reminds me of something else he said. We need to move from a posture of panic to a posture of persuasion. Now, we understand all the reasons for possible panic, right? Challenges we face are scary. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. In the world who disagrees with us, they do not have the same power that we possess. That power that brings self-control and boldness. The power that allows us to patiently, passionately plead for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe as you hear all that, you're, you're just convicted. Convicted because you've failed in this task, a difficult task so many times. You haven't been courageous for the gospel. You've run for cover. And you haven't been patient or self-controlled. You've blasted somebody for their crazy views. But if you've failed in your calling so far, don't you know the boundless love of Christ for failures like us? The only name by which we must be saved. The name, the power that saved even a persecutor of the church. Now, unless God changes my mind, I'm going to start a new series before we get to Saul, Paul in the book of Acts. The one who was right there when they were stoning Stephen. The violent persecutor of the church who was, of course, blinded by the light on that glorious road to Damascus. If God can save Paul, why can't he save you? Whether you're 10% worse than you want to be or a total train wreck like Paul. Oh, God, save us. God, use us. Convince us that the word is not bound. Convince us that the word can cleanse the messiest parts of us. And then convince us that we can find in Christ the patience, the restraint, the meekness, the boldness to proclaim your message to others who need to hear it. We cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. May that be true of us who once were blind, but now can see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as your people, not because we have earned that title, not because we have done it, not because of what we have accomplished, we do it because Christ is a good and gracious Savior, because he obeyed in every way on our behalf, and he covered over our sins with his precious blood. Because of that, we come. Because of that, we cling to the cross of Christ. Father, be with us. If we're not the people you've called us to be, and we are not, not perfectly, certainly, if we're not the people you've called us to be, then wash us cleanse us, strengthen us, feed us, feed our faith that we might trust you more, that we might walk in new faith and new obedience. All this we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.